did you love that song or what? God, it was strong. It was powerful. Hey, um, it was 2005, I believe. 2005. Somebody handed me a DVD set of a television show called Lost. Now, it was on uh, ABC, I think, and I never had seen Lost. And the term binge watch had not really been invented yet, but I discovered what binge watching was through that show. Because um, how many of you saw the show Lost? Okay, yeah, lot, lot, well, about half, about half. Um, hands down, one of the most disappointing endings to a show I've ever seen in my life. I literally wanted to jump out of a roof, but um, jump out of a roof. That was stupid. Anyway, <laughs> jump out of a building. But um, I remember getting that show and putting the first episode in and being like, oh my gosh, well, this is so good. So I had to watch the next episode and I had to watch the next. And before I knew it, like, like two or three days in, have you, you, and you've been there, it's like two o'clock in the morning, but you're like, you know, I got to get up at six. But I need to know where the polar bear came from. So you're trying to figure that out. Now, I asked the question this week on social media. It was fascinating, the answers that I got. How many of you have ever binged watched a show, and what's your favorite show? And, you, and many of you participated. How many of you actually participated in that? Yeah, okay, about half. Um, I think the, the leading show was The Office. Uh, a lot of people have binge watched The Office. There was a scandal, blacklist, um, 24 Friday Night Lights. It's my favorite. Um, there, and, and here's what was funny. Here's what was funny. Lots of people left comments, but I got lots of text messages and DMs going, okay, my favorite show, but I'm not going to put it out there for public, but my favorite show was like Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or whatever. But all of us have probably binged watched something. Or, and so that's, that's just a small taste of addiction. Now today, the message, today and next week, is going to be about the subject of, of addiction. And I want you to know that I'm coming from it um, from two different perspectives. We're going to approach addiction from a theological perspective, but I'm also going to approach it from a personal perspective. Because I didn't realize until I was in treatment several years ago that I've actually been an addict in some way, shape, form, or fashion since I was 10. Let me walk you through it. Um, my first addiction was a food addiction. I, uh, I, it goes all the way back to when I was molested as a child. Um, and that, that's a whole other story in and of itself. And then when I was 10, 11 years old, my mother passed away. I didn't know really how to process or deal with that. So I began to overeat. And, and I, would, I would just eat because I was bored or I would eat because I was sad or I was I would eat because I was mad and that was my addiction and and there's and there's different forms of food addiction today whether it's anorexia or bulimia or whatever and so if you're here and you're wrestling with that sort of addiction I, I get it I understand um, however several years later I was able to step out of that addiction but what's crazy what's crazy is this if you step out of an addiction, but you don't deal with the root, you just deal with the fruit, you'll just step right into another addiction. So I went from, I went from a food addiction to a pornography addiction. And I know I was addicted to pornography. Um, a lot of people uh, question like as to why certain people do things. I know why I did it. I felt very rejected. Um, you know, I, I, 
I was not a good-looking middle school or high school boy, okay? And so I felt very rejected. And so pornography was just my way that I felt accepted. And, um, and, and listen, that's not an excuse. It's just, it's just a fact. It's, it's why I did it. And then um, after I was able to overcome the pornography addiction, several years later, as most people know, I had an alcohol addiction. And I had an alcohol addiction because there was, a lot of, there was a lot of pain in my life. There was a lot of things going on. And this is what I hear. And let me just kind of put this out there. One of the most insensitive things you can say to someone who is struggling with an addiction is this. Well, all you're doing is finding temporary relief. When you're in pain, temporary relief is better than no relief at all. And, 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 and if you don't understand that, then you've never been... So what I'm talking about today, it is from a theological perspective, but I've also been down this road, and, and it, it's marrying those two ideas, and this week's part one, next week's part two, on how to break the chains of addiction. If you want to break the chains of addiction, I think there's four things that we've got to wrap our minds around, four steps that have to be taken in order for the process um, to begin. And we're going to go from we're going to go out of Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, because I've never really seen it this way, and I've been reading this story for 30 years. But there's some things I'm going to show you today that I've never seen in this story um, in regards to the subject of addiction. The first thing that has to happen if we're going to break the chains of addiction is this thing called self-realization. Self-realization. Now, I love Coke. Let me. Coca-Cola. I just call myself the Coca-Cola. You got to talk about, you got to explain, right? Don't need that on YouTube. I love Coca-Cola. Uh, and some of you are Pepsi drinkers, and that's okay. You can be a communist and, and a Pepsi drinker at the same time. Probably a Gamecock fan too. But I like, I like Coca-Cola. And my, my go-to cheat meal, my go-to cheat meal was a, is a Coca-Cola and a cheeseburger with some big fat French fries. That's my, I love it. Some of y'all are like, that's what I eat every day. But I, I don't know. But that's my, that's my cheat meal. And so several years ago, I, um, I cracked open a Coke and I took, you know, drank the whole thing. And about 15 minutes later, I was like, hey, I think I'm having a heart attack. And my, I had some friends with me, that you're not having a heart attack. I was like, no, it really feels like there's a, something right here. And, um, and, and kind of got over that. And next day I drank a Coke and felt the same thing. Next day I drank a Coke and I drank, and I was like, you know what? I think I need to stop drinking Coke. So I go to the doctor and he's like, oh yeah, you've got acid reflux. Yeah, getting old sucks, right? Because I can't drink Coke anymore. But it, it was something that I had to realize on my own. Nobody wrote me a letter. Nobody said, thou shalt not drink Coke. Um, none of that. It was something that I arrived, it was a conclusion that I arrived at on my own. Now, the reason I say that is because if somebody is struggling with an addiction, no amount of lectures, no amount of scriptures, no amount of verbal abuse is going to pull them out of that addiction. The thing, if you have somebody that you love, that you care about, that's wrestling with addiction, the best thing you can do for them is to pray that they will have this thing called self-realization. I'll show it to you in the scriptures. Jesus is telling the story about the prodigal son, and he says this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, 
The younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, if you're sitting on the outside of this story looking in, you can see that this is going to go bad, can't you? And if, if you have someone that you care about that's wrestling with an addiction, you can see that if they continue to go down that road, it's going to go bad. It's inevitable. The, it, the, the wall is coming, and they're going 90 miles an hour, and they're going to hit it, and you feel helpless. You feel like you're out of control. There's nothing you can do. And I'm sure that's the way that people felt in this story. And Jesus goes on to say, after he had spent everything, because not getting out of an addictive behavior is going to cost you something. And I don't say that to you as someone who doesn't know the price that has to be paid. It's cost me. If you're here wrestling with an addiction, it, it, it does cost. It does. It cost him everything. He spent everything. And then there was a severe famine in the whole country. And you would think, well, of course he's going to get his stuff together now, right? But no. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In other words, he's still going down this path even though he's lost everything. And some people go, addicts have to, once they lose everything, then, then they'll quit. And you know what? If somebody is an addict and the real problem, the real issue, the trauma, the pain isn't dealt with, they'll continue to go down that road. But this is the magic verse right here. This is the verse that makes, this is the verse that when I saw it and I wrapped my mind around it, it totally made sense. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Don't miss this. When he came to his senses, not when his wife nagged him to death. When his friends quoted so much scripture to him that they beat him up with, with the Bible. Not when people yelled at him, screamed at him, shamed at him, condemned him. This was something where he had to look at his situation and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. That's when an addict can begin to get better. Not when other people, see, other people can't decide when you're going to step into healing. I wish I, I could decide that for people. Many of you in this room wish you could decide that for people. But you can't decide that for somebody because at the end of the day, the reason an addict does what he or she does, listen to me, there is serious pain and hurt in their lives. Serious. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that I loved waking up with a hangover every morning? No. No. That's not something that people look forward to. They don't look forward to making themselves sick. They don't look forward to spending money on drugs. They don't look forward to those things. But it's not till a person comes to their own senses and says, I don't want to live this way anymore. I've had people ask me, Perry, what do you think about intervention? We just get a bunch of people in a room and stick them and say, you're going to do this? Yeah, that's, that's real effective. And don't, tell, don't talk to me about the freaking TV show. Well, there's, that's effective. Yeah, yeah. It's not apples to apples. 
bunch of people. By the way, they bring all cameras in, so you know it's real. <laughs> and they put this person in the room, and they say, hey, you either go to a treatment facility fully paid for for 90 days. Not everybody gets that option. You, 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 or, or we're going to cut you off. And they talk about the, the success rate. And, and if you really dig deep into the show, the success rate is not that good. You know why? We can't decide when somebody else gets better. If you, my, my, and listen, listen. If you're in this room or watching online and you're wrestling with an addiction, I get it. I understand why you do it. My prayer for you is that you would eventually get to the place, hopefully today, where you could say, I don't want to live like this anymore. That's the first step into healing. Which leads to number two. Number two is confession. Second step is confession. My dad taught me a powerful lesson about confession when I was about nine or ten years old. My dad didn't believe really when I was younger in airplanes. You know, like, I ain't safe. So we would drive across country. My sister lived in California, so we would drive from South Carolina to California. How cruel is that? Take an ADD kid, put him in the back seat, no Game Boys, no anything. We would stop at truck stops and I would buy random books just to have something to do, right? But it, we were in Arizona. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out west, but the roads in New Mexico and Arizona, they are just straight and they go forever. You could put your car on cruise control, take an hour nap, wake up, and you're still, I mean, you're still going straight. Which, by the way, don't try that. It was just a hypothetical illustration. So my dad, we're driving through Arizona. It's late one night. And I don't know about you, but all of, well, all of us have probably done this. Have you ever looked down and not realized how fast you were going? Like, it's like, oh, dear. Because, like, <laughs> you're, you're driving in, and cars are going, you're just passing them. And um, so the blue lights came on, and my dad saw a police officer. You know, and he kind of pulled over, and the police officer walked up and said, can I get your driver's license registration? Dad gives the driver's license registration. He's like, Mr. Noble, do you know why I pulled you over? My dad said, yep, because I was speeding. police officer said, beg your pardon? <laughs> My dad said, because I was speeding. police officer said, do you know how fast you were going? And my dad said, yeah, I was, I was going around 90. And, he, and the police officer went, hold on for a minute. He walked back to the car, came back up, and handed my dad his license registration. He said, Mr. Noble, I've been a police officer for X amount of years. Nobody has ever told me that, A, they were speeding, and B, how fast they were going. So I'm going to let you go. Have a nice day. <laughs> and I'll never will forget that. He looked at me and said, he said, son, always tell the truth. So the first time I got pulled over <laughs> was not in Arizona. It was on March Banks Avenue right here in Anderson, South Carolina. And I still remember the policeman's name. Um, and so he pulled me over, and I was like, I'm just going to be like my dad. So he came up to the, Mr. Noble, you know why I pulled you over? And I was like, because um, I was speeding? He's like, yes, you were. Do you know how fast you were going? I said, yes, sir, I was going 52. He said, you were going 52, and this is a 35, and I'm writing you a ticket. So, so it didn't work for me. It didn't work. It didn't, that's where the illustration kind of breaks down. <laughs> but my dad taught, taught me that whole, that whole confession thing. Now, here's the thing about anybody that's wrestling with an addiction. Confession 
like personal confession. Nobody can, listen, if you love an addict, you can't confess for them. It's got to be something deeply personal. Like this, this young man, he comes to his senses, and then he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Father, I have sinned. Confession. He didn't say, I have some issues. I got some things I'm working through and I can stop anytime. Those are things that, that we say, addicts say, we, I, oh, I, I, I can quit anytime I want and it's not a big deal or whatever. But until we confess, I don't want to live this way anymore, and we confess it out loud. I have a problem, and I want to get well. We will not get well. Now, let me kind of just kind of back up and say, let me, let me give you three reasons why addicts, why we typically do not want to confess, okay, why we do not want to confess. The first one is blame, and it's amazing to me how much people play the blame game. The blame game. I told you a few weeks ago. Um, about my first time going to traffic court, and you have to sit through all the cases like the people they arrested the night before. So I'm sitting in court, and they bring up all the people they arrested the night before, and this was fascinating to me because I've never heard these stories. Um, so this, they, they got this one guy in a trailer park, which you know it's going to go great from that point on, and because I lived in trailer parks for years, so I know this is going to be really good. And they brought him up, and they asked the arresting officer, they, they, they said, why did you arrest this man? He said, well, sir, I got to the you know, trailer park last night, and, and he was there at the trailer, and he was trying to get in. He was, he was intoxicated, and he was, he was using a lot of profanity, Your Honor. And, I just, and there was a four-year-old boy inside, and I just knew that four-year-old boy need, didn't need to hear the profanity. And he kind of went on and built his case. And the judge, <laughs> I'm not making this up, this happened. The judge looks at the man that was arrested and said, sir, do you have anything to say for yourself? And, and the guy had put his hands in his pockets, and he said, yes, sir, yes, sir, your honor, I do. That four-year-old boy cusses more than me. <laughs> I was like, what the, what, what, what? You, you are throwing a four-year-old boy under the bus, and you're wearing a jumpsuit, and it's not because you're a Clemson fan, all right? Like, what is going on here? But he couldn't accept responsibility. Now, here's the deal I know about most addicts. I'm not going to say all because I don't know all addicts. I'll just say every person that I've had personal contact with that is an addict, there's hurt or pain somewhere in their life. Somebody hurt them. Circumstances fell apart around them. They lost a loved one. They lost a friend. There is tragedy. There is trauma. I mean, it's legit. And I understand what it's like to feel hurt and pain. But as long as we play the blame game, we never get well. Because to blame is to be lame. That means we're going to lay around and blame people for the rest of their life. And at the end of the day, listen to me, I don't want to get even. I want to get better. And if I want to get better, then i got to stop blaming people because as long as we blame people, we can be a victim. But victims never walk in victory. Victims never walk in victory. The second reason that we won't confess an addiction is fear. 
fear. Believe it or not, well, you don't have a hard time believing this. All of us love to be comfortable. We drift toward comfort. I thought about it this morning. My alarm went off at 4.15. Somebody just said, wow. Yeah, that's, I, that's, I, just get, I, I have to get up early on something. I'm, just, I'm excited. But my alarm goes off, and I, for just a second, I just didn't want to get out of bed because I'm so comfortable because I got great sheets, and I got a down comforter, and I got it pulled up to here. I got my air conditioner turned down to 62. I got a fan blowing right on me, and it's the best thing in the world, Right? I love comfort. Somebody asked me, did you go to the spring game yesterday at Clemson? I'm like, no. I thought you were a fan. I am, but I love my comfort more than I love the spring game. It was way better to sit in my living room with my legs on my table. I went. Well, praise God for you. You went and sat in traffic, and I sat in my living room, and I was way less stressed than you, right? Because we love comfort. We drift toward things typically that makes us comfortable, and the reason, the reason people use or the reason that people are addicted because believe it or not it gives us a sense that we're in control everything in our life is out of control but when we use or when we do what we do for that for that small section of time we actually have control and even though in reality we don't we really are scared of what giving up control looks like. And so we'll let fear keep us in a place of addiction. The third reason that we won't confess addiction is shame. Shame. Now, I don't know if you've ever been publicly shamed or, or shamed online or shamed in your family or whatever. But nobody loves that. I can, believe it or not, I can still remember the first time I was ever publicly shamed. I remember it. I was in, I was in kindergarten. I had a girlfriend. Her name was Holly. She was hot. <laughs> kindergarten hot, all right? I mean, just, just stay with me. So every day when we would leave kindergarten at Easley Christian School, she would go to her car and I would go to my car. And every single day. I would drop my line on Holly. I would say, bye, Holly. <laughs> and she would look at me, blonde hair. She would wave. She said, bye, Perry. Oh, y'all, I'm telling y'all, it was legit love. And one, one day she didn't come to school. And I can remember my teacher, Miss Conant. I remember. I didn't call her name in the last service. She ain't watching. <laughs> she might be from heaven. It's been a while since I was in kindergarten, all right? So anyway, she's, she's going down the road, and she went to Holly and called her. I don't even remember the girl's last name. Called her name, and she wasn't there. And she said, oh, my goodness. She looked over at me, and she said, Perry, your girlfriend isn't at school today. In that moment, I wanted to die. Like, I wanted to completely disappear from the face of the earth. Because, but, but you know what that feels like when, when, when you're completely shamed in public. And the reason a lot of people don't want to come forward with an addiction is because you get shamed, right? Especially now, I don't know where you're watching from online, but this is Anderson, South Carolina. And what you did when you were 18, people still talk about it when you're 58. 
Oh, you the girl that got pregnant in high school. Yeah, but that was 1964. I mean, can, can we drop it? Can we drop it? One of the things, one of the things that, that will not happen is you will never shame someone out of an addiction. It, and, and one of the reasons the addicts don't come, listen, the last place an addict wants to ask for help is the church. Because the church, oh my gosh, if you ask for help, we're going to pray for you. And if you're not better by next week, we'll kick your butt out the door. And that's not the way that I think Jesus instructed us to handle it in the scriptures. We're not supposed to cast you out. We're supposed to walk with you while you wrestle through your issues. If you can't come to church when you're messy, then you shouldn't be allowed to come to church at all. I have a friend, this is, this, I'm not even, you can't make this stuff up. I have a friend who some people decided to do an intervention. They gathered around him. He had a drinking problem. They slid a contract in front of him that said, uh, sign this contract saying you'll, you'll never drink again. What the hell is that? Like, how effective is that? How many of you that have ever wrestled with an addiction have ever been, oh, my God, why didn't I just think of that? I'll put my name on a contract, and I will never struggle with drinking. I'll never struggle with using. I'll never struggle with making myself sick. That does not work. Church should be a place where shame is put out the door, and we're able to walk in and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm wrestling with. God help me, and may we help one another. I'm a little passionate about this subject. Number three is process. It's a process. Healing from an addiction is a process. you got to understand this. Because if you love somebody who's an addict, it might take 10 weeks. It might take 10 years. Or they might have to fight like hell for the rest of their life. And you got to be okay with it. Look at this. Look at this. Look what Jesus said. Look what Jesus said. So he got up and went to his father. Now, the reason that's so powerful is we know he was in a far country. And he didn't automatically wind up at house. Dad didn't swoop in on a helicopter and take him back. He had to walk. And maybe on his walk, he tripped and fell. Maybe on his walk, he twisted his ankle. All we know is a process. Let's say, for example, you leave here today, and um, you need to get some shopping done, so you run down to Target. And uh, I was in Target the other day. That's, I loved it. It was so much fun. I hadn't been in a while. Um, and so you're just shopping in Target, and there's some water on the floor, and you don't see it. And you, your leg hits the water, and both feet go out from under you, and you fall down, and you break your leg. Anybody ever broken your leg before? Okay, I, I haven't, but I understand it sucks. Um, but you break your leg, and there's no doubt that your leg is broken. I'm talking compound fracture, bone is sticking out of the skin, broken. All right, just stay with me. Don't, don't throw, I know weeks, just don't go. Don't go because, anyway. So it's broken. Now, in that moment, if you're with somebody, what do you look at them? And what, do you, what, what do you say? To, you look at them, and you don't, let me tell you what you don't say. Hey, we just left the church. And I bet you somebody's up there that can pray for me. So all you need to do is take me back up to second chance because just right up the hill, just drag me up, <laughs> throw me in the lobby. We'll get somebody to come pray for me, and then we'll go shoot some hoops. We'll be good. No, nobody's going to say it because if, if, if you're 
on the ground with your leg broken and somebody recommends that, you go, you should have listened to the message today because you are on crack. There is no way. If you break your leg, where are you wanting to go? The hospital. Thank you. Now, there's always one person that goes, don't take me to the ER. It's because you've never broke your freaking leg. If you break your leg, you're like, get me to the hospital. Ah! And you go to the hospital now. And, you, and you're going to sit in the ER for 24, 48 hours. You're going to sit there. They're going to finally get you back, right? <laughs> I'm just getting real right now. It's just getting real. Some of y'all are like, I work at the ER. We'll speed it up. Anyway, so you're... you're you're in the back, and they set your leg, right? Now, after they set your leg, what are they going to do? Are they going to tell you, hey, you can leave, and you can go play basketball, or are they going to put a cast on your leg? They're going to put a cast on your leg, and they're going to tell you, stay off your leg for the next three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, ten weeks, however long it's going to take. You know why? Because healing is a process, and we know that. Physically, if somebody breaks an arm or an, a leg or a finger, we know it's a process physically. Why don't we say that? Why aren't we okay emotionally or spiritually with it? Listen, if you are somebody wrestling with an addiction and you have felt shamed, you have felt put aside, you have felt cast out, here's what I want you to know. This church will not kick you out. This church will walk with you. This work, this church will stand with you through the process. I don't care how long it takes. If it takes 10 weeks, we'll walk with you. If it takes 10 months, if it takes 10 years. Because the process, the process, the process is different for everyone. Which leads to the last point, number four, community. Because listen to me, you can't heal alone. In fact, the more alone an addict gets, the more likely we are to use. You can't heal alone. When you get with community... That'll stand with you. I was, I was uh, driving down the road. God, it was probably about six or seven months ago, and I had to pull over to the side of the road because I just started. I, I mean, I, I was listening to audiobook, and I just started weeping because it was about a guy who had, who was in a, an AA group, and um, he 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 was. It was talking about how he had a lot of fear going back to his group, and it, it came time for him to talk. And this guy had been dry for seven years. And he got in the group, and that night he said, um, hey, guys, I, I messed up this week. I went to my brother's house. Things didn't go so good, and I drank. I drank a lot. And he, he was riddled with shame and guilt. And the author of the book says that the people in the circle went, man, you made it seven years. I haven't made it seven weeks. Another guy said, I've only been, I, I haven't even made it a week yet. Another guy said, I, I've wrestled, I still, I, and they went around the room. 
hold him in. When somebody pulls you in, rather than kicks you out, the potential for healing is unlimited. It, this is what we see it. We see it. Jesus said it. He said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now watch this, because I've, I've read this story for years, and I've never seen this. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That, it just blows my mind. The first thing the father did was got him in the house. And he got him around a group of people that did not condemn him. They celebrated him. He, he, the father got him around a, a bunch of people that didn't say, well, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Heard this before. By the way, those words to an addict does nothing but drive them further into their addiction because it proves you never believed in them in the first place. I've had people tell me, well, Perry, I know an addict, and they've told me they're going to quit, and they're completely dishonest because they go, well, of course they're dishonest because a lot of people will tell an addict, you quit or else. They don't know what the or else is. They'll keep using. They don't want to talk. The, and, and they hide it from you because you've already threatened them. So you've already proven you're not a safe place. Got him in the house. And they celebrated him. I'm like, that's, that's what we're supposed to have. When an addict steps forward and says, I don't want to live, any, I don't want to live this way anymore. I have an addiction, and they want to get serious help. We engage in the, with them in the process, and then we celebrate them as they go along. You know what celebration looks like? If they take two steps forward and one step back, that's still one step forward. We celebrate that. They go three days without using, and they fall off the wagon. You know what we do? We don't, we don't throw Bible verses at them and condemn them. We pick them up and said, you made it three days. Let's go three more days. Can we go four days? Can we go five days? And when, when they fall down, we help them get back up because that's what friends are supposed to do for one another. Not, you fell down. Obviously, you are not right with Jesus. You are a pagan sinner, and you don't belong in this place. Because if we're really honest, do any of us belong I love what the scriptures say, Proverbs 17, Proverbs 17, verse 9, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. The reason a lot of addicts or former addicts don't have really great friends is because too many people want to focus on who they used to be rather than who Jesus is making them into. If you're here and you've never wrestled with an addiction, I don't expect you to really understand most of this message. But if you're here and you've ever wrestled with an addiction, you are wrestling with an addiction, I want you to know this is a safe place to ask for help. Because I started out the message 
by telling you about my battles with it. I'll end with a story, um, and I've shared it before, but it's just still one of those things I never will forget. I was at the Waffle House one night um, with Karis, of course, and we're finishing up our food, and the waitress had kind of looked at me several times, um, and I kind of knew she knew me, um, but I didn't really know her, and, uh, and so I was, we were polite and everything. I was getting ready to leave, and she reached out her hand. She grabbed my arm, and she said, Pastor P., would you pray for me? Um, and I said, yes, ma'am. Uh, what's your name? And she told me your name. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'd be, I'd be glad to pray for you. I said, um, anything, anything specific? And she, I never will forget, she just looked at me and big tears just welled up in her eyes. And she said, um, <laughs> she said, I've been clean for six months. And I was like, six months. That's incredible. That's way to go. And she shook her head. She goes, I don't know if it's worth it. I didn't ask her what she'd been using because I saw the, her arms and I, I knew. She said, Pastor P, all my friends and all my relatives, they all call me a junkie. Somebody just this morning told me, you're a junkie, and that's all that you'll ever be. And she goes, I just don't know why I don't start using again. Because I, she said, I just think I'm a piece of trash. I just stopped. I took her by my hand, and I said, you know what? You've been lied to. You are not a piece of trash. You are a daughter of God. You matter to him. He died for you. You are forgiven. Your sins are paid for. And the chains are broken. And you can walk in freedom. And what I said to her, I'll say to you, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're wrestling with. But I'm here to tell you, I get it. And this church will walk with you. You don't have to live that way anymore. But it's got to be your decision your decision I don't care if you've been in that addiction for 20 or 30 years you can be free but it starts with self-realization and confession so with that can we stand heads bowed and eyes closed Father right now I want to thank you so much that we, we see all over the scriptures, Jesus, that you set people free. And Father, I want to pray for every single person in this room that um, is wrestling with an addiction. God, right now, in the name of Jesus, that you would wash over them with hope. heads bowed and eyes closed if you are here and you are currently wrestling with an addiction I just want you to look up at me and I'm not going to call you out or point you out or make you raise a hand I'm not going to make you feel uncomfortable I just want you to look at me I just want to look at, look at me 
I get it. I understand. But if Jesus can set me free from 35 years of wrestling with it, he can do the same for you. And this is a safe place to take that first step and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I have a problem and I need some help. What we have set up today is what we have set up every week is a care room with volunteers that would love to pray with you or for you. And for many of you, that's your next step. So if you're here today and you're wrestling with an addiction, then I want you, without even looking around, to step out of your aisle and walk out the back doors right now of this auditorium. There's four exits. And we have care room volunteers that would love to meet you, pray with you. I want you to go right now. I want you to go right now. Don't even, don't even look around. Just go right now. If you have someone close to you that is an addict and you don't know how to handle it, I want you to go right now. I just want you to go because we have people back there. They want to pray with you and pray for you. And there are dozens of people going. So you don't even look around to see if other people are going. You just go. If God spoke to your heart in this message, I want you to go right now. Somebody you love dearly is an addict and you don't know what to do. I want you to go right now. And for those that are holding on to that addiction, let me ask you a question. How much longer are you going to hold on to that, sir? It's not going to serve you well. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. It's not worth, the, it's not worth it. You go right now. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want you to understand that Jesus gives you the power to overcome anything. Maybe today you listen to this message in the room or online and you realize you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never asked Jesus into your life. And you need to do that today. You need to give your life to Christ. If that's you, then right where you stand, I want you to just pray in your heart, Jesus Christ, right now, I give my life to you. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to pay for my sins. I receive you into my life. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed to receive Christ, then all over this room, I want you to put your hand up because I want to pray for you. I want you to put your hand up and just leave it up for a second. Amen. Anybody else, if you're online, you can just do the hand raise. Amen. Father, thank you for the hands that are in the air. I pray, God, that today you would fill them with hope, you would fill them with courage, and you would fill them, God, with the, just the knowledge that in you the best is always yet to come. We love you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Everybody said, amen. Are you glad you came to church today?